Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. If you're like me, you probably still have a real emotional memory of those weird, unsettling months in which Joe Biden had won the 2020 election and Donald Trump insisted he was not going to leave office. This was before the insurrection, but when it was like clear, there was something really bad coming. I mean, there were administration officials, people like the Secretary of State and the press secretary, publicly insisting that they were preparing for a second term. And you just, you couldn't see a good end to this, or an end at all. I had a conversation at the time with historian David Blight, who's done so much to develop our modern understanding of the Confederacy and the years after the Civil War, and the way in which the losers nonetheless won the war of the story, of the history. I was asking him about the parallels between the Confederacy and the MAGA movement, and he said this. I I really do believe the Trump presidency, with all of its horrors and all of its lying and all of its misadventures with policy, has been essentially a TV show. Hmm. It is still a TV show when his press secretary gets up and says what she said. I mean, we can't help laughing at that. On the other hand, the test here is all is going to be if there is a Trump loss cause and there's already one being fashioned in in narrative and in stories and in conspiracy theories and on right wing um, media sources. But if there is to be a Trump loss cause, it it has to be sustained for what it already was. And that is essentially a television show, or maybe it'll be uh, a radio show, or maybe it'll be a theme park, as an article in Political <laughs> suggested the other day. And that is that is possible. It certainly is possible. But uh, we shall see. Uh, th- Meaning that it needs a vehicle for delivering the idea. He's got to have a medium for 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 this performance. He has he has the audience. The question will be, how does he create a medium in which to keep that audience? Donald Trump is once again the lead contender for the Republican nomination for president. And the TV show, well, it never really ended, but in recent weeks, it has certainly fired back up. By all reports, the former president sees great opportunity in his likely pending indictment, opportunity to, again, control the narrative of his defeat. And it's got me thinking about the whole conversation I had with David Blight. So I want to share it again with you now. Take a listen. You recently wrote in the New York Review of Books, you said that today's Republican Party is best understood as a modern version of the Confederacy. 
And you wrote this sentence, you said, quote, they are secessionist without taking the revolutionary step of seceding. So, so what do you mean by that? Well, I basically mean that ever since Reaganism, the Republican Party has tried to convince this country to not believe in government. That government is essentially a conspiracy against your liberty and not that which will sustain your liberty or sustain your life or your pursuit of happiness. They have, they have rendered as many institutions within the government uh, weak or as weak as possible. This is, in effect, perhaps you could say from a right-wing point of view, the great triumph of the Trump presidency. It has strangled the Environmental Protection Agency. It has all but destroyed our foreign alliances in the interest of this kind of isolationist vision of the world. Um, they have rendered uh, numerous other institutions uh, moot or weak. And that's what I mean by it, that in effect, the Republicans want to own the government that they do not want to actually function for the vast body of the American politic. They want it to function for their own interest. And that, I think, in the, at the end of the day, explains this perverse loyalty of Republicans to Donald Trump because he did at least help them deliver what they most mm -hmm. wanted, which was tax cuts and judges. And how does that sort of that perversity, how does that relate to then the Confederacy and that history? Is that a similar, uh, is that how you understand the Confederacy as well? Well, the leaders of the Old South and then the leaders of the Southern Secession Movement have been arguing for years and years and years that they had to sustain their primary interest, which was a slave society. Make no mistake, that's what they were working to defend. They had to sustain it within this American republic as it was designed and as it was functioning. But the secession movement of 1860 and 61 was essentially their belief that they could no longer live within the structures of the federal government because they had become a minority interest, a decided minority interest. The Republican Party today also is aware that it is risking becoming, if it isn't already, a numerical minority interest in the United States. The more and more it, it identifies as the white people's party, it is becoming a minority mm -hmm. political force. How do you sustain a minority political force in our system? Well, there, we have institutions that allow you to do it, like the U.S. Senate and like the Electoral College. And this begins to help explain the vast array of methods of voter suppression that the Republicans have enacted over the past 20 years or so. That analogy to the Confederacy is simply trying to say that we have a political party today, Lindsey Graham, what did he call it, a movement mm -hmm. that is trying to strangle the function of federal power in their own interest. I don't know that the Republicans will ever try to secede, although there are secessionist efforts and committees and groups all over the country, especially in Texas. There's even one in California for other reasons. But they're not yet secessionists, but they're sort of secessionists from within. They didn't let the impeachment power play out as it was designed. They, they stymied any attempt 
a further aid to the American people in this pandemic crisis. Uh, Mitch McConnell has sort of locked down the United States Senate, except for the few things that Republicans actually want it to do. That's a sort of secessionist from within. Right. They sort of are prepared to just lock up the federal government and throw away the parts that they don't need uh, in the same way as if they had pulled out. Um, so I, I want to I want to now talk about then, you know, if that's the sort of modern con- Republican Party and its relationship to the Confederacy in your mind, I, I do want to talk about the lost cause, this idea and how it came about and just sort of the a real how to uh, on how this this ideology became part such a deep part of our culture. And so first off, for those who haven't heard the term or who haven't really taken in what it means, can you just summarize when we say the lost cause of the Confederacy? What is what is that? Well, it was it took root in the physical destruction of the South. Uh, It took root in the terrible psychological trauma of defeat for white Southerners. Big time defeat. Let's remember that. It took root in the uh, revival of the Democratic Party, the Southern Democratic Party's resistance to Reconstruction. It, It took root in a tremendous sense of loss of people, uh, but also of a society. It became a kind of religious cult as well. And then it became, perhaps above all, uh, a version of history. Um, It became what I like to call a set of beliefs searching for a history. Uh, And those beliefs were essentially that they believed that Southerners had never really fought for slavery, that they were only defeated by overwhelming industrial might and never really on the battlefield. Uh, They they came to believe in this idea that the most noble or righteous of causes can lose and nevertheless never loses its nobility. They, They had a martyr's cult, which was, of course, the hundreds of thousands of Confederate dead. And they had this leader, Robert E. Lee, that they fashioned, one could say invented into this sort of perfect Christian soldier who also said never fought for slavery. Let me linger on that on that part of it. Um, so first off, what, you know, what you're describing is there's this sort of set of beliefs that are facially untrue to everybody before their eyes at the time, and yet um, were being stated again in public. And somehow it got rooted and passed on. And as you were about to say, as I gather, a big part of that is about creating sort of heroic characters out of failed leaders. And so Robert E. Lee being the key one, can you sort of take us to Memorial Day 1890? Uh, in Richmond, Virginia, I, I understand that, you know, this is kind of the end of the story for the lost cause in some ways, but like, let's start there. Can you describe the scene on that day and like what was happening and why that was important to this story? Well, it's, it's a sort of an ending, but then it's a new beginning. It, it becomes a new stage of the lost cause. I think you're referring to the unveiling of the, mm-hmm. of the huge Lee equestrian statue in Richmond in 1890, which was the first of the eventual five major monuments put up on what is called Monument Avenue in Richmond. Uh, They would all go up over a period of about 15 years. Lee, Jackson, Jeb Stewart, uh, Mowry, uh, the uh, head of uh, the Confederate Navy, and last but not least, Jefferson Davis. That Lee statue is now, of course, uh, still there, 
but it has become a, an object of artistic and aesthetic counter-memory uh, in the wake of uh, the George Floyd uh, rebellions or resistance and protests. Uh, but that, that monument of Lee uh, <laughs> with, with hundreds of thousands of people who had turned out for its unveiling, covered by the national press, and by then, 1890, the Confederate veterans organizations had fully organized, had fully come into their own, and were out in huge, huge numbers to honor uh, their great captain. Um, but that monument is only one, of course, as everyone knows now, of hundreds and hundreds of Confederate monuments that that soon would dot every town and village and city uh, all across the South, and even some in the North. But I should say here, these monuments uh, had, had already started earlier. The, the first major monument in Richmond had been put up in 1874 of Stonewall Jackson on the, on the grounds of the state capital of Virginia. But what now these monuments became is part of a whole set of rituals, and every lost cause, uh, every every great sort of cultural or ideological movement like that, and there have been many other lost causes around the world, uh, can only be sustained eventually by intergenerational rituals. The story has to be carried on, and it now is going to be carried on deep into American culture, including among Northerners, by parades, by the use of cemeteries, the use of monuments, by the United Confederate Veterans Organization, and especially by women in what was known as the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Why, why especially by women? Why is that important? Well, they took over in some ways. Southern women, Southern white women, took over the memorial cultural process much more than the male veterans did. They raised money for these monuments. They organized parades. They created youth groups uh, to which the story was passed on. And the United Daughters of the Confederacy also became a quite powerful lobbying group. They had numerous Southern congressmen and senators wrapped around their fingers to get the money to build all these monuments. Their heyday comes about in the 1890s and especially in the first decade or two of the 20th century. In all those towns uh, where a Confederate monument, large or small, would be unveiled, women were the organizers. There was always a women's memorial committee, a women's memorial organization. And this also was one of those beliefs, one of those deep, deep myths at the heart of the lost cause. And that is that Confederate men, the Confederate soldier, had fought for Southern womanhood. I mean, this is right. a very gendered sort of story. And uh, at every unveiling of a Confederate monument, by and large, there had to be this knot to the Southern women. They were always honored as the as the women who had defended the home front, who had stood by their men, and who had revived the spirits of the surviving soldiers. 
I wonder, as I heard you describe sort of the parades and the monuments and the gatherings, I, I, I'm thinking about what you said at the beginning of, uh, of our conversation about Donald Trump and his lost cause, that he requires a vehicle. I mean, is this sort of, sort of am I doing too much to compare those to this would-be TV or radio or, 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 or theme park um, that Donald Trump will have to go looking for? Well, it's a leap. I mean, we've got to be careful about these analogies. On the other hand, uh, if it's to become a true lost cause ideology, it's going to need vehicles. Uh, and now, I mean, the, the, the possible media vehicles are many, aren't they? But let's remember, too, here, the, the potency of the lost cause ideology was in race, was in white supremacy. And eventually, especially by the 1890s, the lost cause was no longer about loss at all. 1890s into the early 20th century, it became a victory narrative. The lost cause ideology now was the story also of the revival of the South and of the resistance to and defeat of Reconstruction. And that they portrayed as a victory for the entire country, a victory over the radical attempt to equalize the races, a victory over the worst idea of all, which they believed was uh, black suffrage, the right to vote being given to black men. And I, I should say here, and I'm, I'm so grateful to have the time to say as much about the lost cause ideology. <laughs> Usually I don't get this much time. But eventually a, a core element of lost cause ideology became the image of the faithful slave, the contented faithful slave who were often trotted out Old black men or old black women were trotted out at Confederate reunions to be the the sample loyal uh, ex-slave. And in fact, if anyone ever bothers to go look in a library or even online at the Confederate Veteran Magazine, which was published for about 45 years from about 1890 way into the 1930s, in almost every issue of that monthly, after the turn of the century in particular, they would have an article by an, uh, an old Confederate veteran remembering his favorite loyal slave. Wow. It became a, a part and parcel of lost cause remembrance and lost cause ideology. They even held um, uh, so-called reunions or picnic events for mammies, unquote, quote, unquote. This, these were old black women who had served white families, had been their cooks and had been their nurses and so on and so forth. They would honor them so that they were they were essentially saying a great and benevolent, um, noble civilization had been defeated in that war. But its essential ingredients have carried on. It, it goes without saying here, but it can't be said loudly enough that the lost cause ideology was essentially a racial ideology, and eventually it was about the victory they had won over Reconstruction. Coming up, what's all this myth-making mean for the rest of us? There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. 
I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. David, before we went into the break, you were talking about the victory narrative that had been established uh, by 1890. And I guess I wonder, I'm, I'm thinking about who all that victory narrative is for. And thinking about, again, I'm wrestling with the sort of the parallels between now and then. And I want to play you something that someone on a, on a show, on our midday show, all of it with Allison Stewart the week right after the election, I've lost track of time. It's been so much has happened since election day. <laughs> but this was right after the election and before Joe Biden's victory had been declared. Allison and I were taking calls about how people felt. And someone called in that stuck with me as this example of a sort of defeated emotion I keep hearing from people who want to see racial justice in this country yeah. right now. And I want to play that for you and ask you about it. I live in a blue area. I work in a very red area. I live in the Hudson Valley. You know, I'm a Latina. Uh, I spoke to my family this morning, early in the morning. And we're feeling like this was really a racial vote. Mm. And that we don't feel welcome. <laughs> Trump was basically, he ran on basically what, for a lot of us, seems a white supremacist agenda. And to know that even if Biden wins, which I hope he does... But that the that half of this country is willing to accept that and is willing to go with that is very disturbing. I sort of prayed that my country would live up to the ideals that they've always been touting and that I teach my students. But, you know, it doesn't seem that way. And David, that's interesting to me because, you know, certainly uh, the numbers are the numbers. You know, 72 million people voted for Donald Trump. Um, I don't think that's not quite half the electorate, Um, but it was a big turnout. And people, I keep hearing this sense of disappointment that arrives in exactly as uh, the caller said, this sort of idea that the country hasn't lived up to its its ideals, even though— Joe Biden won overwhelmingly, actually. And I guess I've just put that to you in terms of uh, is there any lessons from our history with this lost cause in terms of um, what the narrative of victory, the, the, the narrative of victory in spite of the facts of defeat does to the rest of us? Oh, I think that was a fascinating call and may speak for many, many, many people. I think we got to remember here that all the talk about grievance uh, being among the Trumpists, there's a lot of grievance on the other side, too, if you think about it, that woman was speaking her own sense of grievance of how can there be 72 million people who will follow this man? Think of the grievances, shall we say, on the left or among liberals, uh, grievance over. I mean, just, you know, take your pick of any one of the outrages of the Trump presidency. Think back to Helsinki when he embarrassed his country in front of Putin. Think think of the Atlantic article about what he has said about soldiers. Uh, think of Bob Woodward's book, which just showed he knew what the pandemic was from the beginning. And on and on and on we could go. And yet none of that mattered to this massive outpouring of people 
who are still so tied to him. I think what this means, at least, and it's very hard to take, but that is that liberalism, uh, let's just say uh, people like where I work, uh, liberal elites, whether in universities or in business or in the media, are going to have to keep trying to understand those 72 million as hard as it is. Because one of the things that may have happened here because of the power of conspiracy theory, the power of right-wing media, the power of Fox News, and the power of this individual political figure who has, as we've learned, no shame. He will say anything, he will do anything. And that is that he, his amorality, this is just an idea to try, but his amorality may have all but ruined our own moral imagination if we're not careful. We can become so uh, disgruntled, so disappointed, so sad, if you like, that we might even get immobilized by continuing to try to imagine what we want this country to be. But we got to start with the fact that our our belief in the beautiful pluralism of America and the beautiful ideas that are at the core of its creeds is sometimes just not as potent as hatred. Trump has taught us that. Again, and we've been taught this before, but our set of beliefs, if you want to put it that way, which we hold dear, uh, are up against a set of beliefs uh, that other people hold dear as well. And um, I just found that woman's comment amazing. She, she, she is telling us, look, there may be six or seven reasons people voted for this man, but a whole lot of them voted for him because he is a white racist. And that is hard to go to sleep with at night. When we first aired this conversation, we did not end on the waking nightmares of racism. We had asked you to use the kind of big moral imagination that David Blight is talking about and to just send us your dreams for the future of the country and of your communities. So here's some of what you sent back then. Let's keep imagining. Hey, this is Michael from Raleigh, North Carolina. This is Ida in Austin, Texas. Hi, Kai. My name is Dorian from Queens, New York. My wildest dreams and imaginations. It's going to be hard for me to get through this note to you guys without getting emotional. It's been so nice to imagine a future rather than seeing only black when I think of the future. In the world I imagine, it's spring and nature and hope and in each other. And our neighbors and countrymen and women of all walks have all grown so tired of loss from COVID and everything else. We've become focused on healing and growing the community and the world we share together. I hope that we can once again open our borders to refugees and once again open our arms to immigrants. I hope that we can be that shining beacon of light and hope for people around the world. That people can read each other's minds and animals' minds and animals can read people's minds. What do I imagine for our country in a year, I'm gonna choose a year. I'm imagining 
healing. I'm imagining safe conversations happening all over the country in different communities. I would like to imagine a future where we don't replace one form of prejudice or hatred for another. Uh, I would love to see us tackle the need for reconciliation between the races as we have defined them. I see my community living in a world where being an artist doesn't cause parents to fret and worry and we are truly appreciated and compensated for our work. Um, when I was receiving pandemic assistance on top of employment, it was literally the most money I've ever made consistently. And I am a middle-aged woman who's worked for large companies. Uh, I'm also imagining for myself a whole string of days in a row where I don't have anxiety. I imagine a female or non-binary person, a first-generation American, an LBGTQ individual as our president because it's about time. Where there were signs dividing us for who we're voting for, now there's barbecues, COVID behind us. Where wildfires and hurricanes exist that are now rebuilt homes, businesses, and dreams of what we can recover, achieve, and improve together. We can come together at a concert and dance to a, a band we all love. We can go to the theater and see a play. We can go to the movies, and we can all laugh and cry together. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to share. You can still always send us your dreams, or really anything else on your mind, by visiting notesfromamerica.org. Just look for the little green record button and leave us a voice memo right there. You can also follow us on Instagram at noteswithkai. That's notes with K-A-I. And give us a shout there. Otherwise, I'll talk to you on Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern for the live show. Thanks for listening.